Chapter Twenty One, Part One of the Jacket by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Pascal somewhere says, "In viewing the march of human evolution, the philosophic mind should look upon humanity as one man and not as a conglomeration of individuals." I sit here in Murderer's Row in Folsom. The drowsy hum of flies in my ears as I ponder that thought of Pascal. It is true. Just as the human embryo, in its brief ten lunar months, with bewildering swiftness, in myriad forms and semblances a myriad times multiplied, rehearses the entire history of organic life from vegetable to man. Just as the human boy, in his brief years of boyhood, rehearses the history of primitive man in acts of cruelty and savagery, from wantonness of inflicting pain on lesser creatures, to tribal consciousness expressed by the desire to run in gangs, just so I, Darrell Standing, have rehearsed and relived all that primitive man was, and did, and became, until he became even you and me and the rest of our kind in a twentieth-century civilization. Truly do we carry in us, each human of us alive on the planet today, the incorruptible history of life from life's beginning. This history is written in our tissues and our bones, in our functions and organs, in our brain cells and in our spirits, and in all sorts of physical and psychic atavistic urgencies and compulsions. Once we were fish-like, you and I, my reader, and crawled up out of the sea to pioneer in the great dry land adventure in the thick of which we are now. The marks of the sea are still on us, as the marks of the serpent are still on us, ere the serpent became serpent, and we became we, when pre-serpent and pre-we were one. Once we flew in the air, and once we dwelt aborally and were afraid of the dark. The vestiges remain, graven on you and me, and graven on our seed to come after us to the end of our time on earth. What Pasco glimpsed with the vision of a seer, I have lived. I have seen myself that one man contemplated by Pascal's philosophic eye. Oh, I have a tale, most true, most wonderful, most real to me, although I doubt that I have wit to tell it, and that you, my reader, have wit to perceive it when told. I say that I have seen myself that one man hinted at by Pascal. I have lain in the long trances of the jacket, and glimpsed myself a thousand living men, living the thousand lives that are themselves the history of the human man climbing upward through the ages. Ah, what royal memories are mine! As I flutter through the eons of the long ago, in single-jacket trances I have lived the many lives involved in the thousand-years-long odysseys of the early drifts of men. Heavens! Before I was of the flaxen-haired Aesir, who dwelt in Asgard, and before I was of the red-haired Vanir, who dwelt in Vanaheim, long before those times I have memories, living memories, of earlier drifts, when like thistle-down before the breeze, we drifted south before the face of the descending polar ice-cap. I have died of frost and famine, fight and flood. I have picked berries on the bleak backbone of the world, and I have dug roots to eat from the fat-soiled fens and meadows. I have scratched the reindeer semblance and the semblance of the hairy mammoth on ivory tusks gotten of the chase and on the rock walls of cave shelters when the winter storms moaned outside. I have cracked marrow bones on the sites of kingly cities that had perished centuries before my time, 
or that were destined to be builded centuries after my passing, and I have left the bones of my transient carcasses in pond bottoms and glacial gravels and asphaltum lakes. I have lived through the ages known today among the scientists as the Paleolithic and the Neolithic and the Bronze. I remember when with our domesticated wolves we herded our reindeer to pasture on the north shore of the Mediterranean, where now are France and Italy and Spain. This was before the ice sheet melted backward toward the pole. Many processions of the equinoxes have I lived through and died in, my reader, only that I remember, and you do not. I have been a son of the plough, a son of the fish, a son of the tree. All the religions from the beginnings of man's religious time abide in me, and when the Domini in the chapel, here in Folsom of a Sunday, worships God in his own good modern way, I know that in him, the Domini, still abide the worships of the plough, the fish, the tree, I, and also all worships of Astart and the night. I have been an Aryan master in old Egypt, when my soldiers scrawled obscenities on the carven tombs of kings dead and gone and forgotten aforetime. And I, the Aryan master in old Egypt, have myself builded my two burial places, the one a false and mighty pyramid to which a generation of slaves could attest, the other humble, meagre, secret, rock-hewn in a desert valley by slaves who died immediately their work was done. And I wonder me here in Folsom, while democracy dreams its enchantments o'er the twentieth-century world, whether there, in the rock-hewn crept of that secret desert valley, the bones still abide that once were mine, and that stiffened my animated body when I was an Aryan master, high-stomached to command. And on the great drift, southward and eastward, under the burning sun that perished all descendants of the houses of Asgard and Vanaheim, I have been a king in Ceylon a builder of Aryan monuments under Aryan kings in old Java and old Sumatra. And I have died a hundred deaths on the great South Sea Drift, ere ever the rebirth of me came to plant monuments that only Aryans plant on volcanic tropic islands that I, Darrell Standing, cannot name, being too little versed today in that far sea geography. If only I were articulate to paint in the frail medium of words what I see and know and possess incorporated in my consciousness of the mighty driftage of the races in the times before our present written history began. Yes, we had our history even then. Our old men, our priests, our wise ones, told our history into tales and wrote those tales in the stars so that our seed after us should not forget. From the sky came the life-giving rain and the sunlight, and we studied the sky, learned from the stars to calculate time and apportion the seasons, and we named the stars after our heroes and our foods and our devices for getting food, and after our wanderings and drifts and adventures, and after our functions and our furies of impulse and desire. And alas, we thought the heavens unchanging on which we wrote all our humble yearnings and all the humble things we did or dreamed of doing. When I was a son of the bull, I remember me a lifetime I spent at stargazing. And, later and earlier, there were other lives in which I sang with the priests and the bards the taboo songs of the stars, wherein we believed was written our imperishable record. And here, at the end of it all, 
I pore over books of astronomy from the prison library, such as they allow condemned men to read, and learn that even the heavens are passing fluxes, vexed with star driftage as the earth is by the drifts of men. Equipped with this modern knowledge, I have, returning through the little depth from my earlier lives, been able to compare the heavens then and now. And the stars do change. I have seen pole stars and pole stars and dynasties of pole stars. The pole star today is in Ursa Minor. Yet in those far days I have seen the pole star in Draco, in Hercules, in Vega, in Cygnus, and in Cepheus. No, not even the stars abide. And yet the memory and the knowledge of them abides in me, in the spirit of me that is memory and that is eternal. Only spirit abides, all else being mere matter, passes and must pass. Oh, I do see myself today that one man who appeared in the elder world, blond, ferocious, a killer and a lover, a meat-eater and a root-digger, a gypsy and a robber, who, club in hand, through millenniums of years, wandered the world around, seeking meat to devour, and sheltered nests for his younglings and sucklings. I am that man, the sum of him, the all of him, the hairless biped who struggled upward from the slime and created love and law out of the anarchy of fecund life that screamed and squalled in the jungle. I am all that that man was and did become. I see myself, through the painful generations, snarling and killing the game and the fish, clearing the first fields from the forest, making rude tools of stone and bone, building houses of wood, thatching the roofs with leaves and straw, domesticating the wild grasses and meadow roots, fathering them to become the progenitors of rice and millet and wheat and barley, and all manner of succulent edibles, learning to scratch the soil, to sow, to reap, to store, beating out the fibres of plants to spin into thread and to weave into cloth, devising systems of irrigation, working in metals, making markets and trade routes, building boats, and founding navigation, aye, and organising village life, welding villages to villages till they became tribes, welding tribes together till they became nations, ever seeking the law of things, ever making the laws of humans so that humans might live together in amity, and by united effort beat down and destroy all manner of creeping, crawling, squalling things that might else destroy them. I was that man in all his births and endeavors. I am that man today, waiting my due death by the law that I helped to devise many a thousand years ago, and by which I have died many times before this, many times. And as I contemplate this vast past history of me, I find several great and splendid influences, and chiefest of these, the love of woman, man's love for the woman of his kind. I see myself, the one man, the lover, always the lover. Yes, also was I the great fighter, but somehow it seems to me as I sit here, and evenly balance it all, that I was, more than aught else, the great lover. It was because I loved greatly that I was the great fighter. Sometimes I think that the story of man is the story of the love of woman. This memory of all my past that I write now is the memory of my love of woman. Even in the ten thousand lives and guises, I loved her. I love her now. My sleep is fraught with her. My waking fancies, no matter whence they start, lead me always to her. There is no escaping her, that eternal, splendid, ever-resplendent figure of woman. Oh, make no mistake. I am no callow, ardent youth. I am an elderly man, 
broken in health and body and soon to die. I am a scientist and a philosopher. I, as all the generations of philosophers before me, know woman for what she is, her weaknesses and meannesses and immodesties and ignobilities, her earth-bound feet and her eyes that have never seen the stars. But, and the everlasting, irrefragable fact remains, her feet are beautiful, her eyes are beautiful, her arms and breasts are paradise, her charm is potent beyond all charm that has ever dazzled men, and, as the pole willy-nilly draws the needle, just so willy-nilly does she draw men. Woman has made me laugh at death and distance, scorn, fatigue, and sleep. I have slain men, many men, for love of woman, and in warm blood have baptized our nuptials or washed away the stain of her favor to another. I have gone down to death and dishonor, my betrayal of my comrades and of the stars black upon me, for woman's sake. For my sake, rather, I desired her so. And I have lain in the barley, sick with yearning for her, just to see her pass and glut my eyes with the swaying wonder of her and of her hair, black with the night, or brown or flaxen, or all gold dusty with the sun. For woman is beautiful to man. She is sweet to his tongue and fragrance in his nostrils. She is fire in his blood and a thunder of trumpets. Her voice is beyond all music in his ears, and she can shake his soul that else stands steadfast in the draughty presence of the titans of the light and of the dark. And beyond his star-gazing in his far-imagined heavens, Valkyrie or Hurry, man has fain made place for her, for he could see no heaven without her. And the sword, in battle, singing, sings not so sweet a song as the woman sings to man merely by her laugh in the moonlight, or her love-sob in the dark, or by her swaying on her way under the sun, while he lies dizzy with longing in the grass. I have died of love. I have died for love, as you shall see. In a little while they will take me out, me, Darrell Standing, and make me die. And that death shall be for love. Oh, not lightly was I stirred when I slew Professor Haskell in the laboratory at the University of California. He was a man, I was a man, and there was a woman beautiful. Do you understand? She was a woman, and I was a man and a lover, and all the heredity of love was mine up from the black and squalling jungle, ere love was love and man was man. Oh, eh, it is nothing new. Often, often in that long past have I given life and honor, place and power for love. Man is different from woman. She is close to the immediate and knows only the need of instant things. We know honor above her honor, and pride beyond her wildest guess of pride. Our eyes are far-visioned for star-gazing, while her eyes see no farther than the solid earth beneath her feet, the lover's breast upon her breast, the infant lusty in the hollow of her arm. And yet, such is our alchemy compounded of the ages. Woman works magic in our dreams and in our veins, so that more than dreams and far visions and the blood of life itself is woman to us, who, as lovers truly say, is more than all the world. Yet is this just, else would man not be man, the fighter and the conqueror, treading his red way on the face of all other and lesser life. For had man not been the lover, the royal lover, he could never have become the kingly fighter. We fight best, and die best, and live best, for what we love. 
I am that one man. I see myself the many selves that have gone into the constituting of me. And ever I see the woman, the many women, who have made me and undone me, who have loved me and whom I have loved. I remember, oh, long ago when humankind was very young, that I made me a snare and a pit with a pointed stake upthrust in the middle thereof for the taking of Sabretooth. Sabretooth, long-fanged and long-haired, was the chiefest peril to us of the squatting place, who crouched through the nights over our fires, and by day increased the growing shell-bank beneath us by the clams we dug and devoured from the salt mud-flats beside us. And when the roar and the squall of Sabretooth roused us where we squatted by our dying embers, and I was wild with far vision of the proof of the pit and the stake, it was the woman, arms about me, leg twining, who fought with me and restrained me not to go out through the dark to my desire. She was part clad, for warmth only, in skins of animals, mangy and fire-burnt, that I had slain. She was swart and dirty with camp smoke, unwashed since the spring rains, with nails gnarled and broken, and hands that were calloused like footpads, and were more like claws than like hands. But her eyes were blue as the summer sky is, as the deep sea is, and there was that in her eyes, and in her clasped arms about me, and in her heart beating against mine, that withheld me. Though through the dark until dawn, while Sabretooth squalled his wrath and his agony, I could hear my comrades snickering and sniggling to their women, in that I had not the faith in my emprise and invention to venture through the night to the pit and the stake I had devised for the undoing of Sabretooth. But my woman, my savage mate, held me, savage that I was, and her eyes drew me, and her arms chained me and her twining legs and heart beating to mine seduced me from my far dream of things, my man's achievement, the goal beyond goals, the taking and the slaying of Sabretooth on the stake in the pit. Once I was Ushu, the archer. I remember it well, for I was lost from my own people, through the great forest, till I emerged on the flat lands and grasslands, and was taken in by a strange people, kin in that their skin was white, their hair yellow, their speech not too remote from mine. And she was Iger, and I drew her as I sang in the twilight, for she was destined a race-mother, and she was broad-built and full-dugged, and she could not but draw to the man heavy-muscled, deep-chested, who sang of his prowess in manslaying and in meat-getting, and so promised food and protection to her in her weakness, whilst she mothered the seed that was to hunt the meat and live after her. And these people knew not the wisdom of my people, and that they snared and pitted their meat, and in battle used clubs and stone-throwing sticks, and were unaware of the virtues of arrows swift-flying, notched on the end to fit the thong of deer sinew, well-twisted, that sprang into straightness when released to the spring of the ash-stick bent in the middle. And while I sang, the stranger men laughed in the twilight, and only she, Iger, believed and had faith in me. I took her alone to the hunting, where the deer sought the waterhole, and my bow twanged and sang in the covert, and the deer fell fast-stricken, and the warm meat was sweet to us, and she was mine there by the waterhole. And because of Iger I remained with the strange men, and I taught them the making of bows from the red and sweet-smelling wood like unto cedar. And I taught them to keep both eyes open, and to aim with the left eye, and to make blunt shafts for small game and pronged shafts of bone for the fish in the clear water, 
and to flake arrowheads from obsidian for the deer and the wild horse, the elk and old saber-tooth. But the flaking of stone they laughed at, till I shot an elk through and through, the flake stone standing out and beyond, the feathered shaft sunk in its vitals, the whole tribe applauding. I was Ushu the archer, and Iger was my woman and mate. We laughed under the sun in the morning, when our man-child and woman-child, yellowed like honey-bees, sprawled and rolled in the mustard, and at night she lay close in my arms, and loved me, and urged me, because of my skill at the seasoning of woods and the flaking of arrowheads, that I should stay close by the camp and let the other men bring to me the meat from the perils of hunting. And I listened, and grew fat and short-breathed, and in the long nights unsleeping, worried that the men of the stranger tribe brought me meat for my wisdom and honor, but laughed at my fatness and undesire for the hunting and fighting. And in my old age, when our sons were man-grown and our daughters were mothers, when up from the Southland the dark men, flat-browed, kinky-headed, surged like waves of the sea upon us, and we fled back before them to the hill-slopes, Iger, like my mates far before and long after, leg-twining, arm-clasping, unseen far visions, strove to hold me aloof from the battle. And I tore myself from her, fat and short-breathed, while she wept that no longer I loved her, and I went out to the night-fighting and dawn-fighting, where, to the singing of bowstrings and the shrilling of arrows, feathered, sharp-pointed, we showed them, the kinky-heads, the skill of the killing, and taught them the wit and the willing of slaughter. And as I died there, at the end of the fighting, there were death-songs and singing about me, and the songs seemed to sing, as these words I have written, when I was Ushu the archer, and Iger, my mate-woman, leg-twining, arm-clasping, would have held me back from the battle. Once, and heaven alone knows when, save that it was in the long ago when man was young, we lived beside great swamps, where the hills drew down close to the wide sluggish river, and where our women gathered berries and roots, and there were herds of deer, of wild horses, of antelope, and of elk, that we men slew with arrows or trapped in the pits or hill-pockets. From the river we caught fish in nets, twisted by the women of the bark of young trees. I was a man, eager and curious as the antelope when we lured it by waving grass clumps where we lay hidden in the thick of the grass. The wild rice grew in the swamp, rising sheer from the water on the edges of the channels. Each morning the blackbirds awoke us with their chatter as they left their roost to fly to the swamp and through the long twilight the air was filled with their noise as they went back to their roosts. It was the time that the rice ripened, and there were ducks also, and ducks and blackbirds feasted to fatness on the ripe rice half unhusked by the sun. End of chapter 21, part 1